Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 47 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Bilderberg Group. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1954, a shadowy group of international leaders began meeting, and they keep their meetings secret. Many attendees wouldn't acknowledge that they went even, or even that they knew about the group. And critics have accused them of being a global conspiracy with plans for a one-world government. And that's what we'll be talking about in this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what are the theories that people have about the Bilderberg Group? So there are two basic theories. The first one says they are a sinister conspiracy that is up to no good. They make presidents, they cause wars, they manipulate the global economy, they manipulate the media, they created the European Union, and now they're creating other uh, supranational unions, which they eventually plan to integrate into a one world government. On the other hand, the other major theory, they say, we're innocent. We, we don't have any authority. We take no resolutions and we're just a forum for exchanging ideas. <laughs> okay. That sounds, uh, that sounds very... That, that meets in secret. Yeah, that meets in secret. Yes. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about what we know about the Bilderberg Group. What is the Bilderberg Group? They were started by Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, and they first met at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeek, Netherlands, which is why they're called the Bilderberg Group after the first hotel they met at. They meet every year in late May or June, normally in June. And historically, they've met for three days. It seems now they're meeting for four days a year. They've got an annual budget of about a million dollars to put on these meetings. They don't all, always meet in the same place anymore than you. No, no, no. They go uh, go all over the place. OK, so what does the Builder Group itself have to say about their themselves and their goals? They have an FAQ on their Web page, BilderbergMeetings.org. And according to the FAQ, the Bilderberg meeting is an annual meeting designed to foster dialogue between Europe and North America. Bilderberg was established in 1954 as a forum for informal discussions, bringing together individuals who share an active interest in affairs relevant to the relationship between Europe and North America. The meeting has one main goal, to foster discussion and dialogue. There is no desired outcome. There is no closing statement. There are no resolutions proposed or votes taken. Then why do people accuse them of being secretive, given that they have a <laughs> website? Well, in the past, they didn't publicly announce when they were meeting. And even today, the public often finds out only shortly before they do. That's that's one reason I couldn't schedule this podcast to be released just before their meeting this year. That's what I normally do and say, hey, they're going to be in the news the next few days. So we're, here's some information about them. I couldn't do that because... They haven't announced it as of the time we're recording this. So I just had to put this podcast somewhere in June. Historically, little or no information was released about the meetings even afterward. And today, the information we have is very sketchy. The website, BilderbergMeetings.org, and its FAQ are very new. 
And basically, they were created in the last few years, seemingly as a result of public exposés on the group that were starting to appear in the media. The media was finally starting to take note of them. And so they decided we better try to get ahead of the curve and have some something to say for ourselves in public. But it's very minimal what you find on their website. You don't find transcripts or MP3s or videos of their meetings. Um, it's just minimal statements. They all operate under something called the Chatham House Rule, which puts severe limits on what attendees can say about the meeting afterwards. Some attendees would lie about the group or even deny knowing anything about it. For example, Hillary Clinton. It is reported that she attended the 2006 meeting. And that's at the time she was running for president. That was uh, she lost the nomination to Barack Obama. But at the time she was running, and that's what you'd actually expect of a presidential candidate. Frequently, presidential candidates will go to these things while they're running. Uh, we'll talk about a candidate who's doing that, who did that in 2018 at their most recent meeting. But whether or not she went in 2006, we know she went in, in 1997. And the reason we know that is because there is an, an unclassified memo talking about that fact on the website of the Clinton Presidential Library that talks about what happened at the 1997 meeting. And the headline, it's an email, and the headline of the email is FLOTUS, or First Lady of the United States, FLOTUS at the Bilderberg meeting. And so we'll have in the show notes a link to that memo so you can read it for yourself. But even though we know she went in 1997, in 2007, 10 years later, when she was running for president, she appeared to deny knowledge of the Bilderberg group. And we have a clip of her appearing to deny knowledge of it. How you doing? I'm good. How are you Can doing? I ask you a quick question while you sign that? Sure. It was reported in Ju June of 2006. You attended a meeting in Ottawa, Canada, the Bilderberg Group. Can you comment on that? What do you, what's going on at the Bilderberg meeting, and what do you guys talk about up there? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. I was reported you were up there, and people saw you up there. I just want to know what you guys talk about and meet about up there. Uh, sir, I don't Why know. Why are they such top-secret meetings? I have no idea what you're talking about. Your husband about. went to a Bilderberg meeting, too. Uh, I'm just wondering. I'm not being rude or anything. No, I I just, I I just want to know what I happens at these meetings. Well, uh, since I wasn't there, I have no uh, idea. Okay, thank you, Senator. Thank you. How are you? There you go. Thank, thank, you, thank, you, thank you. You bet. So even though she could be mentally reserving, oh, I wasn't there in 2006, so I have no idea what you're talking about about that meeting. It seems like she's not being straightforward here. She's pretty uh, much denying that yeah, the gene, knowledge this, of this group. She's making it sound like she doesn't know anything about the group when she's been to the group's meetings and probably was there in 2006 because people get pictures of the politicians. It's hard, but they do. So that's one reason that Bilderberg is viewed as secretive when you have politicians just lying about it like that and not others. That, not that politicians lying is an unusual circumstance, but but some, no. such bald faced, obvious lies about yeah. that are, are usually unusual, are unusual. When your own husband's presidential library has memos talking about you attending this group. Right, yeah. right. So another reason that they're viewed as secretive is, well, they closed down a hotel completely every year for this. Nobody is allowed to be in the hotel during the meeting except the attendees and the support staff. And the hotel and security employees are required to keep quiet and even sign non-disclosure agreements. Uh, the hotel that they pick is not a downtown hotel 
where people could see them easily getting in and out of cars. It's always secluded in the middle of a large empty space, and that allows uh, attendees to be whisked in from the airport in limousines with tinted windows and then get out of the hotel, get out at the hotel without crowds of people seeing them. They usually meet another thing that is kind of secretive seeming about them. They usually meet in the United States in presidential election years so that American politicians can attend without calling as much attention to themselves as if they left the country for several days in the middle of an election cycle. Uh, So they're like making it easy for American politicians to attend on the down low. They also have no official press coverage, none of their event. According to the FAQ, there's a question, are journalists allowed to attend? Is there an accreditation process and how can I apply? <laughs> the The answer is the meeting is closed to reporting journalists in order to encourage the highest level of openness and dialogue. As a result, there is no accreditation process. There is no accreditation of journalists. Over the years, journalists have attended a titre personnel, which means in their own private capacity, not functioning as journalists. And then there's another kind of follow-up question to that. With such high-caliber guests, why is there so little media coverage on Bilderberg? Bilderberg Meetings has never sought any public attention. An annual press conference on the eve of the meeting was held for several decades up until the 90s, but it was stopped due to lack of interest. However, the list of participants, main topics, and the location are always published a few days before each meeting. <laughs> Lack of interest. <laughs> yeah, I think there's interest now. <laughs> yeah. Whether there was interest in the 90s or not, there is interest now. You could bring back that press conference. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's interesting. I, 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 as you read that, I, the, I picture the, the typical uh, PR flack reading it in that uh, that PR flack voice that they have. So, yeah. But, so who leads the, the group and how is it financed? According to the FAQ, Bilderberg Meetings, notice they call themselves Meetings rather than the Bilderberg Group, which is what everyone else calls them. Uh, Bilderberg Meetings is led by the steering committee. Its chairman is currently Henri de Castres. And so and we know who the leaders of the steering committee have been over time. He's the current one. In terms of finance, annual contributions by steering committee members cover the annual costs of the secretariat. The budget of the secretariat is limited to the costs of the meeting. The hospitality costs of the annual meeting are the responsibility of the steering committee members of the host country. Participation is by invitation only, and there is no attendance fee. Participants take care of their own travel and accommodation costs. And uh, basically, one of the jobs of the steering committee members is to drum up the million dollars that they need to put this on every year. And that largely comes, or in part, it comes from Bilderberg-related organizations like IBM and so forth. They do not accept donations from non-Bilderberg corporations, but some have tried to donate, presumably to get invited and stuff like that. But it's like, nope, if you're not one of us, we don't want your money. So a couple of questions that arise from this. One is, who is Henri de Castries? Do, do we know who he is? He's, he's, well, he's just this guy, you know, he's, <laughs> he's, this European guy. Okay. Presumably uh, well-connected and well-heeled. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And when you say they're c- uh, connected organizations, but c- th- you mean people? There's, 
And we'll talk about that when we get down to like the industry tech attendees. But every year they always have certain businesses that have representatives okay, there. That's what and I was, so it's like from those groups. Okay, that's what I was getting at. Okay. So who who does attend these meetings? According to the FAQ, the participant list changes from year to year and is published on this website. The Bilderberg meeting has always represented a diverse mix of backgrounds, views, generations, and genders. Participants take part in the meeting as individuals in their own right. And then the, I love the next question, it's, what criteria do I have to meet and what do I have to do to get inv- to get an invitation to a Bilderberg meeting? <laughs> there is no application process. The key question is whether participants can bring an interesting perspective to the discussions. Participants are invited because they can offer a different point of view. How does the invitation procedure work? Steering committee members propose invitees to the chairman, who consults with the other members of the steering committee and decides whether an invitation is issued or not. There is always comprehensive discussion to ensure maximum diversity in background, views, generations, and gender. So that's what they say in their FAQ. More concretely, about 120 to 150 people go every year. Some of them go only once, but others go every single year. They're like always invited. Their members are primarily part of the Atlantic Alliance. So that's the United States and Canada and Europe. That's, you know, in keeping with their stated goal. The known attendees are movers and shakers from several key fields, including politics, banking, high tech and industry, academia, and journalism. And in recent years, for at least the last three meetings, they've been publishing lists of attendees, but these appear to be incomplete. We have evidence of other people attending these meetings who are not on the official list. So that's another reason that people are suspicious of them. So we know some who some of the people are attending. So who are some of these participants? Since our audience is primarily in the U.S. with some folks in England and so forth, I'll focus primarily on people and institutions that Americans and Brits will have heard of. And like I said, they go in those different categories. All right. So let's go category by category. What political figures have attended? Prince Charles of the U.K., Prince Philip of the U.K., Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, King Juan Carlos of Spain, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, and Margaret Thatcher, so four British prime ministers. And even though Margaret Thatcher attended, she later was uh, she later severely criticized the group. Hillary Clinton, when she was first lady and seemingly afterwards, Timothy Geithner, U.S. Treasury Secretary, Dick Gephardt, former House Majority Leader. Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, George Schultz, Secretary of State, James Baker, Secretary of Defense, John Hickenlooper, Democrat of Colorado, attended the 2018 meeting, and he's currently running for president in the United States. Rick Perry, Republican governor of Texas, who also was running for president a few years ago. Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State, who goes every year. He's one of them. He just goes every year. Robert Rubin, former Secretary uh, Treasury Secretary. Lawrence Summers, also former Treasury Secretary, now a Harvard professor. Tom Daschle, Democratic Senator of South Dakota. John Edwards, Senator, uh, Democratic Senator of North Carolina and former presidential candidate. John Kerry, Democratic Senator of Massachusetts and former presidential candidate. Lindsey Graham, Republican Senator of South Carolina. 
David Cohen, former deputy director of the CIA, Tom Cotton, a Republican senator of Arkansas, Terry McAuliffe, Democratic governor of Virginia, and Wilbur Ross, secretary of commerce. And then what individuals from that? Ben- that that's a, that's a few. That's a few. Right. Right. I mean, when we talk about 120, 150 per year, that's that's just a, a, a light <laughs> slice yeah. of that. So what individuals are from the banking and finance industries? I won't list as many because these guys aren't publicly as well known as politicians. So most of their names won't be as recognizable. But David Rockefeller, chairman Chase Manhattan Bank, Ben Bernanke, chairman of Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Bank. Paul Volcker, former chair of the Federal Reserve Bank, Stanley Fisher, former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, David Petraeus, former general, now a finance chairman, Roger Ferguson, the CEO of of the TIAA investment firm, and then representatives of various major banks, including uh, Deutsche Bank, has somebody there every year, the European Central Bank, Royal Bank of Canada, National Bank of Belgium. Bank of Italy, Bank of England. And again, just a small subsection of the total list. What about uh, individuals from the high tech and other industry? Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn. Jared Cohen, founder of Jigsaw at Alphabet. And Alphabet is the parent company that owns Google. Harmut Nevin, director of engineering for Google. Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal. Eric Schmidt, executive chairman of Alphabet. Jeff Bezos. Amazon, Bill Gates, Microsoft, Lou Gerstner, IBM, H.J. Hines of the Hines Company, the people who make ketchup, Chris Hughes, co-founder of Facebook, and representatives of other countries, including France Telecom, Airbus, Alcoa, Daimler Chrysler, British Petroleum, Fiat Automobiles, Unilever, and Nestle. All right. And then how about from academia? Harvard University has people there every year, often multiple people. Other universities include Stanford, Princeton, New York University, American University, Oxford University, Cambridge University, University of London, University College London, University of Milan, University of Montreal, Leiden University, University of Munich, and University of Mainz. Uh, And then mentioned that journalists attended in personal capacity uh, what which journalists have done so? Some of them are William F. Buckley of National Review, Charlie Rose, television journalist of Charlie Rose, George <laughs> Stephanopoulos, former Clinton official and later ABC News, Charles Cook, editor of The Cook Report, which is a political newsletter, Zanny Milton Beddoes, editor-in-chief of The Economist, Maurizio Molinari, editor-in-chief of La Stampa, the Italian newspaper, George Osborne, editor of the London Evening Standard, John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg, Peggy Noonan, Wall Street Journal columnist, and she seems to have gone every recent year, Anne Applebaum, columnist for the Washington Post, Richard Engel, chief foreign correspondent, NBC News, and Megan McArdle, columnist for Bloomberg LP. Notice, by the way, Some of these individuals, and I didn't spell out all their connections just to keep it short, but some of these individuals represent more than one field because of the way there's kind of a rotating door between government and other fields like banking and and industry and so forth. So you get your government job, you start in the private sector, you get your government job, you come back to the private sector, you get another government job, you rotate in and out of those things if you're one of the movers and shakers. Also, you may notice they're nonpartisan. 
because they include both liberals and conservatives, lots of Democrats, lots of Republicans. And you mentioned that there the potential you know, people who are running for president, U.S. president, tend to go, tend to get invited. Yeah. Yeah. So like John Hickenlooper went in 2018. We know Bill Clinton went before he was president. Uh, there's good evidence not only for him, but Barack Obama uh, and Hillary Clinton went before their presidential runs. And that's led to the accusation of the Bilderbergers being kingmakers, in essence, for the United States. But there is one person who never, never goes to the Bilderberg meeting. And that is? The sitting president of the United States. It would be too noticeable if he vanished for four days. And so people may go to the Bilderberg meeting when they're running for president. But once they get elected, they never go. Not till they're out of office. There are other sorts of meetings of movers and shakers that sitting presidents have attended. Uh, I remember Clinton going to one at Hilton Head every year, but that was reported yeah. on. And, and, and I think even Davos. Uh, yeah, Barack Obama Davos. To Davos. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. But but this is one where the president never goes. And that 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 does raise that interesting question uh, about why. Uh, interesting. So what do they talk about at these meetings? Do they just sit around, and talk about the sports? And <laughs> Well, well, since their guest lists are incomplete, I don't know if their topics lists are incomplete or not. But the most recent one for the 2018 meeting listed the following topics. Populism in Europe the inequality challenge, the future of work, artificial intelligence, the U.S. before the midterms, free trade, U.S. world leadership, Russia, quantum computing, Saudi Arabia and Iran, the quote-unquote post-truth world. I'm guessing they were dissing the Trump administration in that. And then current events. Other recent topics, you look at some of the other meetings they've announced topics for, include the Trump administration, a progress report, the direction of the European Union, can globalization be slowed down, nuclear prol proliferation, China, the Middle East, the U.S. political landscape and economy, and cybersecurity. There are also undoubtedly lots of informal off-the-record discussions as part of the networking between the attendees, either, you know, during meals or in the evenings. And then historically, they played golf on Saturday. Because because that's what rich, powerful people do for fun. They yeah. play golf. So what are the chat? What's this Chatham House rule that they follow? OK, so according to the FAQ, when a meeting or part thereof is held under the Chatham House rule, participants are free to use the information received but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor that of any other participant may be revealed. So basically, you can say, well, you know, this got talked about, but you can't say who proposed it or what who they were affiliated with. Then there's the next question in the FAQ. In today's information society and with so many of your participants regularly underscoring the importance of transparency and an open society. How can you justify imposing the Chatham House rule on proceedings? Participants are, of course, free to discuss the meeting, and many do so every year. However, participants are asked not to quote each other. This is to ensure that the participants feel they can speak freely in an atmosphere of trust. <laughs> Which, is, of course, is what every conspirator wants. Right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
we do have a, a little bit more perspective on that. There's a British labor politician named Dennis Healy, and he gave an interview to John Ronson in it's in a book called Them, which is about conspiracy theories about people trying to rule the world. So naturally, John Ronson, who's he's basically a humorous journalist from Britain, and he, you know, devotes a couple of chapters to the Bilderberg Group. And he as part of his investigation after a story that we're going to hear in a little bit, which is really interesting. He managed to get an interview with Dennis Healy, who was on the steering committee for the Bilderbergs for a long time. And according to Dennis Healy, we aren't secret, he snapped. We're private. Nobody is going to speak freely if they're going to be quoted by ambitious and prurient journalists like you who think it'll help your career to attack something you have no knowledge of. <laughs> Defensive much? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Also notice a, a criminal would say exactly the same. Thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so the uh, let's look at the reason perspective. Uh, are they as innocent as they want us to believe? They're certainly trying to portray themselves as innocent. Notice that in the last few years, they seem to have rebranded themselves as the Bilderberg meetings, not the Bilderberg group. So it's like we're just having meetings. We're not a sinister group. Right. A, a, a group is people doing a thing. Yeah. A meeting is an abstract concept of, of an action. Right. right. Yeah. That, so it's touchier, feelier branding. But branding isn't what's important. It's what what do they do? Well, they do include both liberals and conservatives. On the other hand, a counterpoint, there's not a lot of difference between those these days. And both liberals and conservatives can still be globalists. Right. So, you know, it they are reaching across the aisle, but how much does that actually count for anything? And you look at the sectors they represent in society. It's not like the church has a place there. Church might have some interesting things to say about stuff. All kinds of people might have interesting things to say. But look at who they've got. Well, politicians make the laws and policies that control stuff. Financiers help pay for stuff. Tech and industry make stuff. Academia provides ideas for stuff. And journalism manages public perceptions of stuff. So you've got a strategic alliance of industries that looks or sectors that looks like it's designed to coordinate and do something to achieve some kind of vision. I mean, if you wanted if you wanted to really make, uh, you know, change policy in the world, you would want politicians, you would want financiers, you would want tech, you would want academia and you would want journalists to keep a lid on this whole thing and to sell it to people the right way when it comes time. If you are forming a global conspiracy, this is what it would this is how you would go about doing it, whether or not it is this is a conspiracy. Yeah. This is what you would do. OK, so do we have evidence of the Bilderberg Group behaving in a sinister way? Not from the inside the meetings because they're closed, but surrounding them, there's some kind of sinister behavior. I mentioned John Ronson and in 1999, he went to the builder. He didn't attend it, but he went to where the Bilderbergers were meeting in central Portugal. He went with a guy named Big Jim Tucker who was he ran a publication called The Spotlight 
it's not in business anymore, but it it was a kind of underground newspaper, right wing thing that focused on the Bilderbergers a lot. And Big Jim Tucker was known for doing that. So he and he he was going to the Bilderberg meeting like he did every year to try to expose them. And in 1999, John Ronson tagged along with them. And so they went to the hotel that they were going to be meeting at a few days before the meeting to like scope it out and see. And then they were going to watch the shutdown of the hotel and then they were going to watch the arrival of the guests and so forth. So they initially went there and they were doing their initial kind of checking out the hotel. And then we have this story from Ronson, which you're going to read for us. Uh, He says, it didn't cross my mind right up until the moment that the man in the tweed jacket marched across the room and began questioning me in an angry whisper that I was being tailed. Quote, we've watched you for an hour. I'm the hotel manager. You take pictures. You ask questions about some big, important meeting. Who are you? I I paused. Then I humbly announced, I'm from England. It was the only thing I could think of. This works, of course, in other circumstances abroad, but it didn't work here. What do you want? I stared blankly at him. What is your business here? I continued to stare blankly, and then another man appeared. This new man was older, with a tan, and he spoke with a smooth European accent. It's okay, he laughed. Everything's fine. There's no problem. He gave the hotel manager's shoulder a little squeeze. I am your servant, he said to me. If there's anything you'd like, please be my guest. Think of this hotel as your home. If I can be of any service to you, any service whatsoever, don't hesitate to ask. I glanced over with anxiety at the hotel manager, who was now standing a little way off, overruled, slighted, and silent. I mean, he smiled, what could you possibly be doing here that could cause any harm to anybody? Are you... I paused. There was something indistinctly alarming about the things he was saying to me. I could not imagine that he really did want me to think of this hotel as my home, so why did he say that? I presume, in retrospect, that the message he was sending to me was, We have noticed you, you are not welcome, but we are allowing you to leave without incident, just so long as you don't come back. At the time, however, the message I picked up was, I am extremely sinister and powerful. This is so evident that I can afford to feign generous subservience. Are you with the Caesar Park? I asked the charming man. Oh, no, he laughed. No, I am not with the hotel. So, as I say, think of this hotel as your home. Really, everything's fine and there's no problem. What problems could there be? What problems could there be? I wanted the young hotel manager to intervene. I suddenly felt that he could be my ally in this situation, but he remained impassive. Don't feel as if you have to go, said the charming man, his arms outstretched. Stay as long as you like. Enjoy the facilities. Have a swim. So if you're not with the hotel, I said, who are you with? I am, he paused, another organization, which is called, he laughed and looked at the ground. Enjoy your afternoon, he said. I love <laughs> I love how I'm not with the hotel, but think of it as your home and go for a swim. And, you know, yes, he was quite like, generous. I'm, I'm in charge here, even though I'm not with the hotel. (laughs) Right, right. So they came back the next day and they were really amazed. They didn't think they were going to get on the grounds. They assumed that that they would be stopped at the gate. But when they drove up, the gatekeeper just waved them in. So they went in and it's like the hotel is deserted. There is nobody here, no guests. And they already knew that you couldn't book a room for when the Bilderberg meeting was going to be going on because the Bilderberg group takes over the whole whole hotel. So they they found this deserted hotel and then they were as they left the property they were followed by a guy in a dark green Lancia automobile 
for three hours. And after at about the three hour mark, John Ronson is getting rather nervous about this car that's following them for three hours from the hotel. So he calls the British embassy in Portugal and we pick up the story there. I'm a journalist from London, I said. I'm calling you on the road from Sintra to Estoril. I'm being tailed right now by a dark green Lancia belonging to the Bilderberg Group. There was a sharp intake of breath. Go on, she said. I'm sorry, I said, but I just heard you take a sharp breath. Bilderberg, she said. Yes, I said. They watched us scouting around the Caesar Park Hotel, and they've been following us ever since. We've now been followed for three hours. I wasn't sure at first, so I stopped my car on the side of a deserted lane, and he stopped his car right in front of us. Can you imagine just how chilling that moment was? This was especially disconcerting because I'm from England and I'm not used to being spied on. Do you have Bilderberg's permission to be in Portugal, she said? Do they know you are here? No, I said. Bilderberg are very secretive, she said. They don't want people looking into their business. What are you doing here? I'm essentially a humorous journalist, I explained. I'm a humorous journalist out of my depth. Do you think it might help if we tell them that? Listen, she said urgently. Bilderberg is much bigger than we are. We're very small. We're just a little embassy. Do you understand? They're way out of our league. All I can say is go back to your hotel and sit tight. <laughs> I, I, I love so many aspects of that. It's like uh, I'm being followed by a car belonging to the Bilderberg group. <gasps> you know, and, and, and it's like they're way out of our league. We're just a tiny little embassy. And I love his line about how uh, I'm from England and not used to being spied on. It's like, have you do you, is that? Meant to be ironic, given the number of CCTV cameras in London. In any event, they go back to the hotel and then the Lancia guy gets out of the car and hides behind a tree to watch them. And Ronson tries to make contact with him. He starts to go up to the guy, but the guy like waves Ronson off. And so then we pick up the last little bit of the story. Sandra from the British Embassy called me back to say she had spoken to the Bilderberg office at the Caesar Park. And they said that nobody was following us, and how could they call off someone who didn't exist? <laughs> he is, I said in a staccato whisper, behind the tree. The good news, said Sandra, is if you know you're being followed, they're probably just trying to intimidate you. The dangerous ones would be those you don't know are following you. <laughs> well, thank you, Sandra, for that interesting yeah, bit of news. <laughs> so a little sinister thing. I mean, <laughs> intimidate people much? If they're so innocent, well, why would why would they do this right. to this com comedy journalist? Now, in defense, you could say, OK, well, there's probably a mixture of paranoia happening here. I mean, Big Jim Tucker has been filling Ronson's mind full of conspiracy theories about the Bilderbergers. But on the other hand, this guy follows him for three hours. He parks right in front of them when they test are we being followed or not then he follows them to their hotel and hides behind a tree and doesn't and what like waves ronson off doesn't want to talk to him but just watches them so there is some menace here but you could say if if you're on the bilderberg pr committee you could say oh this is just overzealous security guys this doesn't reflect actual bilderberg policy they're just they're they're doing this and they just got a little over exuberant in in what they're doing that would be the defense I would offer if I was a Bilderberger. You know, another uh, explanation might also be, and you can tell me whether I'm off base on this, but Ronson does describe himself as a humor journalist. Is it possible mm -hmm. he's embellishing for effect? 
I don't think so. I I have read multiple books of John Ronson's. I mean, he may be shading things slightly, but I don't think he's making up facts. I have I have uh, read multiple books by him, and he he not only writes books, he makes documentaries, and so it's uh, often possible to watch the footage that corresponds to what's in the book. And when you do that, it's like this is exactly the same dialogue. Okay, this is he's not making this up. I was struck by by the question from the embassy. Do you have B- Bilderberg's permission to be in Portugal? <laughs> do, do, yeah. Was I supposed to get, get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have yeah. to wonder well, now. <laughs> it, since this happened in a car, I don't know that there's a that there's video footage of this, although there might be. But I, I would think if he where, where he's shading stuff, it, it'll more be about his internal experience of how he received things. And he and even then he distinguishes. He says, in hindsight, I think this is what this guy is saying. But at the moment, this is the message I got. Right. That's he says that when talking about the uh, the very urbane uh, European fellow at the hotel, the well manicured man yeah, yes. to use an X-Files reference. <laughs> yeah. So what about these charges that the Bilderberg Group is responsible for the election of U.S. presidents? So here's what Dennis Healy told Ronson later. He said, Bilderberg is a way of bringing together politicians, industrialists, financiers, and journalists. Politics shouldn't involve politics should involve people who aren't politicians. We make a point of getting along younger politicians who are obviously rising to bring them together with financiers and industrialists who offer them wise words. It increases the chance of having a sensible global policy. So from that perspective, you invite some of these movers and shakers in politics to your meetings, you're, it's more likely to result in a good policy. On the other hand, if you're a presidential candidate, you want to meet these movers and shakers. Some of them may get to, you know, may support your campaign or may prove to be allies later on or things like that. You may be able to get their support in the election. So, you know, there's mutual benefit on both sides. So I don't think that this is disinterested. I think they're, hey, this guy could be the next president. Let's get him over here. And so I think that is going on. But I don't think they have ultimate control over the U.S. presidency. And I've got one word, a one word argument, although I can't elaborate. I have a one word argument for why they don't have ultimate control over the U.S. presidency. Trump. To elaborate a little bit, if anybody would have been their candidate, it would have been Hillary Clinton. Right. And she lost. So I don't think the Bilderbergers are ultimately in control of the U.S. election. Do we know if he's ever been invited, Trump? I have not been able to find that out. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because he is a big, rich guy. But on the other hand, he is so brash. I can see them saying, ah, we don't really want this guy here. I don't think Chatham House rules apply to Trump. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, he, he, I mean, say anything to Trump and he's likely to put it on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. So does the Bilderberg Group cause wars, as they has been claimed? We have some evidence that they're briefed in advance of foreseen wars. Like we have evidence, for example, that Donald Rumsfeld told them before the 2003 Iraq war that we're going to probably launch our offensive in, you know, after a certain point in time. But it was already publicly being reported that we were likely to go to war and the Bilderberg Group wasn't causing the war, at least so far as the evidence would indicate. Obviously, there are people who might claim it does. So I I don't really have good evidence that they cause wars. But and in fact, you look at their agendas and what they say they're talking about and their very purpose for being. 
uh, they were founded because in part because of rising anti-Americanism in Europe. And that was a problem because Europe after World War II needed America to defend it from the Soviet Union. And so the Prince of the Netherlands and other people in Europe said, we need to encourage a better environment with the Americans as part of the Cold War. And so actually, a lot of their efforts seem to be devoted to tamping down and heading off military conflicts. So they they seem to be I mean, they the evidence points to them not really being interested in starting wars, but in stopping them. Um, having said that, sometimes wars impact their meetings and they may you know, change policies as a result of that. For example, Ronson was told that during the Falklands War, the British government's request for international sanctions against Argentina fell on stony ground. But at a Bilderberg meeting, I think he's being told in Denmark, David Owen stood up and gave the most fiery speech in favor of imposing them. Well, that speech changed a lot of minds. I'm sure that various foreign ministers went back to their respective countries and told their leaders what David Owen had said. And you know what? Sanctions were imposed. So it's not like they have no involvement in military conflicts, but their orientation seems to be stopping rather than starting these things. So and then they're claimed that they they manipulate the global economy. What do you think of that? It doesn't look like look like they do in a direct way. I mean, they say they pass no resolutions, and that's probably true. If they did take resolutions and were voting on things when they say they're not, somebody would probably spill the beans on that. But they're also not the right people to directly control government policy in most cases. What I think is undoubtedly true, though, is they are using influence to affect the economy in soft ways. Otherwise, so many finance and government people wouldn't show up. So I don't think they're directly manipulating the global economy as a group, but I think they are as a group having a kind of soft influence on the economy. And do they manipulate the media? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. Through flattery and expl- getting to explain their views in an off-the-record way to journalists, they are totally manipulating the media. If you're a journalist and you get invited to one of these meetings, that is a huge feather in your cap. You makes you feel really important, makes you take whatever you're told at these meetings with seriousness. You even get to talk back to all these important people as they explain their side of things to you. So I think the inclusion of journalists is not because journalists are particularly well-educated because they're not. That's what you have the academics for. The reason to include journalists is to help get these PR people on your side. Yeah, uh, journalists have, as a as a whole, not not individually necessarily, but as a whole, have a tendency to want to make a difference in the world. And what better way to make a difference than talking to the movers and shakers like this? Yeah, I could see that being attractive. Mm-hmm. So, did the Bilderberg Group cause the European Union, and are they planning a one world government based on that? Because we don't have you know, a lot of internal information, it's hard to say, but certainly they seem supportive of the project of the European Union. And there are claims that they're directly responsible, that they kind of got the ball rolling on, okay, let's make a big super nation out of the nation states of Europe so we won't have wars in Europe anymore. 
And uh, the first step of that was the European common market and then the creation of the European Union. And it's very, I, I, I you know, I, I can't say they controlled this process, but I think they were strongly supportive of it. I would think that even though they, at least these days, don't take resolutions, this was something there was a lot of talking, hey, let's all do this, guys, so we can avoid another world war. And so I I think that's plausible. On the other hand, I don't think just like I don't think they have actual control of the U.S. election. I don't think they have actual control of this. And again, I have a one word argument. Brexit. If they did have actual control, then the Brexit vote would not have happened. It's also possible. Now, the claim is that they're then trying to integrate other like continental areas into these big groups. And just like they started the European common market before as a prelude to the or I should say, just as the European common market was created as a prelude to the European Union, you had the American free trade zone created, uh, you know, with NAFTA and all that as a you could argue as a prelude to a North American union. And then the idea would be once you get all these continental unions established, you then stitch them up together with. Uh, you know, presumably a, a United Nation with United Nations with teeth. And at that point, you have a one world government. So there's a certain plausibility to that logic. You could say if we're about stopping wars and encouraging prosperity, this is one way you could do that. It's also something that in 2001, John Ronson talked about with Dennis Healy. Uh, he said, this is how Dennis Healy describes a Bilderberg person to me, quote, to say we were striving for a one-world government is exaggerated, but not wholly unfair. Those of us in Bilderberg felt we couldn't go on forever fighting one another for nothing and killing people and rendering millions homeless. So we felt that a single community throughout the world would be a good thing. And then in another context, he added, but I will tell you this. If extremists and leaders of militant groups believe that Bilderberg is out to do them down, then they're right. We are. We are against Islamic fundamentalism, for instance, because it's against democracy. And then Ronson asked Healy if meeting in secret was also kind of against democracy. And <laughs> he told him to F something. But notice that Healy said he that they're in favor of a single community throughout the world, which is not the same thing necessarily as a single government throughout the world. So I would put the, are they in favor of a one world government as an open question? I wouldn't be surprised if the Bilderberg membership is split on this. I don't think they all think in lops, lockstep. It's not like they've got Borg implants telling them what to think. So I would think that some of them might say, oh yeah, we want a one world government, you know, Within 100 years, others might say, oh, maybe someday, but not really comfortable about it. And others would say, no, I think it's better to preserve individual nations for the foreseeable future as laboratories for experimentation. Um, so I would suspect that even though they're broadly globalist in terms of wanting a global community, they're not necessarily all on board with the idea of a single world government. So given all this that we've talked about, are they technically a conspiracy or are they just a discussion group? So a conspiracy, to have a conspiracy in the proper sense, you have to be having an agreement between more than one person that involves committing a crime. 
And at least as far as the American participants go, there is a law that they are potentially violating. It was passed in 1799, and it's called the Logan Act. There was a guy named George Logan who conducted unauthorized negotiations with France and was accused of undermining the U.S. government's position. And so as a result of that, the Logan Act got passed, and it says, any citizen of the United States, wherever he may be, who, without authority of the United States, directly or indirectly commences or carries on any correspondence or intercourse with a foreign government or any officer or agent thereof with the intent to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government or of any officer or agent thereof in relation to any disputes or controversies with the United States or to defeat the measures of the United States shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. So basically, if you're a U.S. citizen, you're not supposed to be directly or indirectly influencing the policies of other nations that might conflict with with U.S. policy. So, I, you know, you could argue it's hard to say because we don't have exact records of what goes on, but you could say that's what's happening here. And so the I noticed on the FAQ on the BilderbergMeetings.org website, they have a couple of things in the FAQ that could be designed to shield American participants from being accused of violating the Logan Act. The first one is they say everyone is acting in their personal capacity. And so they're not acting as officials of the U.S. government, even if they are officials of the U.S. government. Second, it says we don't take any resolutions or votes. Well, that still doesn't mean that the Logan Act isn't being violated, but it looks like those could be, in part, attempts to address that question and kind of head off problems. Now, there's not a big danger that anybody's going to get charged with the Logan Act anyway. And since 1799, there have been two people charged with violating the Logan Act. One was in 1802. The other was in 1852. And neither one was convicted. So although you sometimes hear people accusing like politicians in the press of violating the Logan Act, like maybe John Kerry negotiating with people during the Vietnam War or whatever, nobody has been charged in court with that. So that's the reason perspective. What can we say from the faith perspective? Uh, the catechism acknowledges that there is a role for private discussions and for discreet speech, including the keeping of secrets. That's why we have the seal of confession. It's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with keeping stuff private. It depends on what are you using the privacy for. And since we don't know exactly what they discuss, it's hard to make an evaluation one way or another of, is this something that should be out in the, in the public? Catholic social teaching is also not opposed to an international system that promotes the common good, but it would have to operate in accord with human rights and Christian values. And frankly, these people do not give strong evidence of having that on their agenda. Such a uh, such an international system would also have to promote human freedom, and that doesn't lead inescapably to a one world government, especially not one on the model of like what we see in Europe and so forth. Even though the Bilderberg Group may be promoting peace in the main, peace is not to be sought at any price. 
if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and and I, I I mean this only as a warning, but if you not as something I'm proposing specifically about the Bilderberg Group, but if you look at paragraphs 675 and 676 from the Catechism, it says. Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-Messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. The Antichrist deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment. The church has rejected even modified forms of this falsification of the kingdom, especially the intrinsically perverse form of a secular messianism. So, to the extent that the Bilderberg attendees, and I, like I said, I don't think they all support this, but to the extent they say, oh, yeah, let's let's promote peace and have this secular, without any frame of reference for God, one world order that's going to make all everything great, that's already in some way, on some level, realizing a little bit of uh, the Antichrist's ultimate deception. I am not saying the Bilderberg group is an agent of Antichrist. On the other hand, this is a warning that needs to be kept in mind, and who knows what role they might play in the future. So it's something that, you know, we need to be mindful of, regardless of the specifics of this particular group hoping to build a better world. I was just going to say, we want to build a better world, but but if they're heading in a, in, in a secular utopia direction, that's not where we need to go. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line about the Bilderberg group and the claims of, cons- of being conspiracists? I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think the Bilderberg group is as innocent as they claim. Adam Smith, in his book, The Wealth of Nations, has a a quote that I really love. He says, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends up in a conspiracy against the public, or at least some contrivance to raise prices. And, and... You got people of the same trades meeting together, and it's not just for merriment and diversion. They're talking policy. I think that human interest is going to turn that to their own advantage somehow. So I don't think they're as innocent as uh, they claim. I also don't think that they're as powerful as some of their critics claim. And I further think that there is a question about whether the American participants might be violating the Logan Act, but I think it's very unlikely any of them will be prosecuted. You know, I, I think you know, even if they are not nefarious, if they're not gathering together for this specific purpose to, you know, to secretly rule the world, there is that danger. You, you mentioned this. It's concerning when a group of pe- powerful people get together and they with they, no sunshine. Right. And where they could be reinforcing ideas and concepts among themselves that are not necessarily to the benefit of the vast majority except from their own point of view. Sort of like right. what uh, uh, Adam Smith was saying there. Mm-hmm. So that it's, it's still worth being concerned about it, that, that we take that in consideration. So, Jimmy, what further resources on the Bilderberg Group do you want to offer the listeners? 
Well, I'll have a link to Mark a book by Mark Dice called The Bilderberg Group Facts and Fiction. And he's definitely a critic of the Bilderberg Group, but he also uh, tends to document stuff about the group quite well. He also kind of gets into some areas where it's like, I'm not sure this is really the Bilderbergers you're talking about here. His book is useful. Also, we'll have a link to John Ronson's book, Them, Adventures with Extremists. Um, and the Bilderberg Group is not the only group of folks he investigates in that. And some of the other groups we'll be talking about on upcoming episodes, like Bohemian Grove, for example. We'll have a link to Wikipedia's entry on the Bilderberg Group and the Bilderberg's official site, as well as a link to Encyclopedia Britannica. Also, we'll have links to Wikipedia on the Chatham House Rule and the Logan Act. We'll have a link to the Clinton Presidential Library record of Hillary Clinton attending the Bilderberg meeting in 1997. And we'll have a video of Hillary Clinton denying knowledge of Bilderberg in 2007. <laughs> Oh, very nice. So, uh, not going to get into the politics. So, <laughs> that's the Bilderberg Group. And uh, so, uh, before we finish up, we want to, of course, talk about the mysterious feedback from our listeners. We love getting your feedback. Uh, we have a few from our iTunes reviews. And again, we really appreciate when you leave a review on iTunes or other directories. That helps other people find the show and gets them to... to uh, to, to subscribe and to listen and it grows our audience. So we really do appreciate that. Uh, Panhandle doc 33 says I was not a listener to podcasts at all until this one. Love all the podcasts in the series, but the skinwalker ranch intrigued me more than all great series and keep up the good work. Awesome. Thank you so much. Panhandle doc 33. And then uh, Rivendell 630 says Jimmy does a great job presenting the information that he finds. I'm always amazed that he makes even the uninteresting become interesting Several times there have been episodes that I think I won't enjoy, and yet each time I learn something new and I'm fascinated by what is presented. I'm glad they've opened a bookstore on the SQPN website so that I can easily find the supplemental reading material to further investigate the mysterious world we live in. That's at MysteriousWorldStore.com. Yeah, and we uh, appreciate your purchasing uh, things there because it helps uh, the network stay afloat and when you do that, and so many thanks. Yes, and uh, I have to second it. Yeah, sometimes I don't recognize the titles and I think, well, that doesn't sound like we can make a whole show out of that. And then, of course, you do your research and we start talking about it. I'm like, what? This is amazing. Fascinating. Just yeah. just recently, like I've ne had never heard of uh, John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet. And we recently had that episode and fascinating, just fascinating. Yeah, th these are the things that fascinate me. And so I, I even if you've not heard of them, I think people will really enjoy them once you give them a listen. Yeah. And then uh, Mopedimus writes. Jimmy Aiken does a fantastic job of presenting the available evidence in an objective manner. He presents the proposed explanations reasonably, and his conclusion is presented fairly, while not proposing to come to final conclusions on what he doesn't know. Don Bettinelli is a fantastic host, asks probing questions, and helps to move the discussion along. This podcast, more than any other SQPN show, has helped me accomplish their mission. I've been able to share these with non-Catholic and non-Christian friends and co-workers, and they likewise found them engaging and enjoyable. Absolutely worth the time to listen. Thank you so much, Mopetimus. We really appreciate you sharing the show with others, including uh, people who come from other faith perspectives. That's uh, what we're all about, is talking about interesting information from both perspectives of faith and reason. And we want to have as broad an audience as we possibly can. So thank you for sharing. Yes, that goes right to the mission of SQPN. Which we're exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture. And uh, this, this show, I think, 
uh, does it really well. And we really do appreciate you. You, the listeners, are an integral part of that mission because we can make all the recordings. But if you don't share with others, uh, it's not getting out there and uh, getting this this amazing content out to people. So really, thank you so much. Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Okay, so this is a headline that just is so Australia. (laughs) Australian man trades two cases of beer for a unicorn sheep. (laughs) There was a sheep with one horn that was being uh, readied for the slaughterhouse, and he bought it for two cases of beer. (laughs) So, uh, So check that out, and you get to see pictures of the unicorn sheep. Also have a story that ties back to one of our previous episodes we did on Bob Lazar, the alleged UFO whistleblower from Area 51. And in a documentary that we talked about on Bob Lazar, the there was a claim the FBI raided his home. And I followed up because the documentary didn't really present a lot of visual evidence that that happened. It had like one photo of someone wearing an FBI jacket taken from behind. Uh, so I followed up with the FBI and I actually talked to one of the um, agents who was present at the raid. And then I speculated on what may have led to the raid. It wasn't Lazar himself that was being investigated. You know, uh, he wasn't the focus of the investigation. But uh, someone else filed a Freedom of Information Act request about the raid and has already heard back from the FBI. So we'll have a uh, link to an article on the FBI confirming the raid on Bob Lazar's business. And they've got a little more information about what the raid was actually about and what actually was the target. So, Jimmy, what what do we have coming up in our next episode or next couple of episodes in this case? Yes. So next week we have two episodes. On Monday, we'll be releasing a special bonus episode. Uh, This episode is one we did a while back for our patrons. We want to always find new ways to thank our patrons for their generous support of the show. And so we did an episode devoted just to their questions. And we gave them exclusive access to it initially. Uh, But now we're going to share it with you so that uh, you can... Uh, see what some of the benefits of being a patron are. And you get to ask questions like this, and and then I do my best to answer them. And we talk about a number of mysteries that we have already talked about, but then we talk about a bunch of new mysteries we haven't talked about, like the green children of Woolpit <laughs> and, and so forth. So you'll want to check that out on Monday. And then on Friday, I mentioned last week, in last week's episode, it was the... Um, Kenneth Arnold sighting that launched the modern UFO invest wave era. And uh, I mentioned that Roswell occurred just a couple weeks after that. So next Friday, we're going to be talking about the Roswell crash. Excellent. And because this is Fourth of July weekend coming up and and all that, a lot of podcasts take some time off. We're giving you an extra episode to fill that space. uh, Yeah. Uh, And uh, just because it's on a Monday doesn't mean it's an April Fool's joke. Just that's only April Fool's, not Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we don't do Monday Fool's jokes. All right. Excellent. Uh, This has just been a a great, great series of episodes have been going here. And I'm so looking forward to what we've got coming over the summer. And I'm so grateful uh, to the patrons who this bonus episode was for. And because of that, I want to take a moment to thank them for making this show possible, including James H., Charles K., Dr. T., Craig H. and Adam C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What do you think about the Bilderberg Group? 
and what Jimmy's uncovered uh, and what we talked about and the theories and the claims and the perspectives, let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave some feedback there or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can also send a tweet to at mys underscore world or use the hashtag mysterious feedback. No, uh, no spaces in that at all. Remember again to like this episode on the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, retweet it on Twitter, and share it widely. Uh, we want to get the the news out about the show to everyone and really get that uh, interest uh, into these topics that we discuss. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>